Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Prizman. I am delighted to be joined today by Sarah Rose Etter. She's the author of The Chaplet's Tongue Party and the Book of X, winner of a Shirley Jackson Award for Best Novel. Her work has appeared in Time, Guernica, Bomb, Bennington Review, The Cut, Vice, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles, and her new novel is called Ripe. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Maris. Thank you for having me. Big fan of you. Oh, thank you. I'm a big fan of you, even though I feel like reading this book felt like having the worst prolonged case of the Sunday scaries ever. (laughs) (laughs) I've been hearing that a lot. Like people are like, your book gave me a panic attack, but I mean it in a good way. And I'm like, (laughs) there is something cathartic about you make us look into the, the darkest dark. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think. I think we've gotten to a point where we forget other people are having the same experience on the other side of a screen or even in our workplace. And so I think a lot about this concept that gets kicked around a little bit more in visual art of like being alone together. And that kind of feels like what I was trying to get at is that probably however you're feeling, there's somebody right next to you who is feeling the same way. And so even though it is bleak, and a panic attack and all of those things. I hope it also is a recognition that we are all feeling the same thing at the same time in some way, unless we're completely divorced from the news cycle or completely <laughs> Republican. <laughs> sorry to Republicans out there. No, I'm not taking that back. Actually, I'm not. Sorry. No one's. No one's. I'm not sorry to Republicans. Actually, <laughs> they don't listen to this podcast. It's okay. They're probably also not feeling these feelings. So, um, yeah. I mean, and and so you, in in telling us about Kathy's life, you, of course, have a word that she uses to describe the people who don't mind and don't, don't suffer these feelings. And they are believers, which I found funny because, of course, they're in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is kind of a religion out there, especially when you're at a startup or any tech company, you really yeah. have to play ball. You have to act like you're all in. And I think for her, especially because there's such a surveillance coming from the company, it's not like she could really ask anyone up if they're feeling the same way she is, right? Every movement she makes, even when she throws up in the toilet and her boss, you know, within 15 minutes is like, are you okay? <laughs> and it's like, you know, um, she can't turn to anybody and be like, isn't this fucked up (laughs) like you know she's she has to just keep hiding it and you know I think that's a a way in which we also continue to be separate from each other is that we're sometimes forced into situations where we have to pretend like we're okay with it and we're really not but she doesn't really I don't think she can really find somebody to commiserate with yeah I mean and and I I love how you describe her fake self which is the way she deals with this pressure to not have earnest feelings yeah I mean I think the same thing comes up when when the when the ethics come in at work with her you know is she complicit it's hard to say that when there's a paycheck on the line the money the money for her for someone who doesn't have a lot of it and probably couldn't even afford to move away from San Francisco you know all of a sudden her morals can't even be in question because she needs to live Um, And so I do think there are a lot of companies that are built on lower middle class people who really need the paycheck and can't say no. I do. I do think there's a lot of that. Even when we saw the layoffs happen in tech, 
I kept kind of thinking to myself, it's very easy when these things happen to laugh and think of like a CEO on a Zoom or on like a scooter yes. and be like, you know, ha ha ha. But what's underneath that is a ton of people who never wanted to go into tech. And it's the only industry in America that's paying and gives you healthcare, right? Like all of us started out as adjuncts. Every single person I know in tech wanted to be something else. No, you know what I mean? And so like, I, you know, it's sad when you see the layoffs because the reality is the people that are getting laid off are probably the people who actually really needed the job. You know, they're not laying off <laughs> the SVPs. They're laying off uh, people like us who went that route because they needed healthcare and they needed stability and they needed to earn a living wage. And so, you know, I think that's a big part of hopefully what this book is trying to underscore is like, you know, that's the that's the precarity she's in. Yeah. And I feel like Cassie's particular time and place make her kind of a particular product of, uh, you know, scratch that. I feel like Cassie's setting makes her even more of a, as in a strange middle place. Like she is living in San Francisco when tremendous wealth has come into the city and and of course unhoused people are everywhere and they've been displaced the rich people seemingly don't care it's like a very black and white seeming situation and of course cassie is stuck in in the gray area yeah i think a lot of us are right a lot of us are and it's it's one of those things where she's coming from this background where she was taught that if she did everything right and she got the right job, she would be able to have a house, have a credit card, have all these things. And that's not our reality anymore. Even if you play by the rules your parents raised you with. And I think she's kind of at that turning point where she's starting to realize that that's actually not going to come true for her. And so, you know, I, I do think I, re- I lived in Silicon Valley for a year. So much of this book is informed about how I was feeling. And I, yeah. I did have a man who lived under my window and I heard him suffering constantly. And it was a very, you know, when I talk about being alone together, that that comes to mind, right? I could hear this person suffering. I could offer him not much help, not real help. I could offer food sometimes and money, but like sustainable long-term help, you know, who are you going to call for that? It's not, <laughs> not you know, an individual so, person. Right. And so I think a lot of it, I remember when I moved there, you know, within a couple of weeks, I think I started to feel like I was living on the edge of the earth and I was watching society just kind of start to collapse. And by the time the book has actually been published now, I do think you could scratch <laughs> San Francisco and it's every city, you know, it could, it's every city. And yeah. so, you know, there is a way in which that's, that's super sad to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and also the feeling of like, the people around me are living truly tragic lives and and suffering in a way that no one should. And so then what what does my suffering, <laughs> where does my suffering fit into that is a question I think that Kathy is, is asking. Yeah, I do think we can get a little bit into this idea that someone always has it worse mm-hmm. as a way to minimize our own suffering and our own pain. And I sometimes wonder if that, is really as helpful as we think it is because, you know, I think everyone's carrying a lot of pain and the source of it, you know, might be different, but we're all, anyone, anyone right now is probably walking around carrying something that's not so great. <laughs> yeah. And so I do think, you know, she's, I, I hope maybe underscoring 
what happens if we don't acknowledge that pain. I think she's an example of what happens if you don't get help, if you don't do the right things, if you don't talk to someone about it. You know, she's somebody that should probably have a therapist and hopefully, you know, in five years she would be at one. She's kind of like that friend you have that you kind of hate and eventually you're like, I'm going to stop talking to her because she's like, (laughs) and then like she gets a therapist and then you can be friends like five years later. Like, I feel like that's her. (laughs) And and yes, if that's not relatable, um. (laughs) And so instead, she does have some coping mechanisms to to deal with this stuff, but of course, they're they're not the most helpful. Talk to me about Cassie's fascination with black holes, with black holes as metaphors, but then also trying to go beyond the metaphor to understand what the actual literal idea of the black hole is you know it kind of came through writing it she became obsessed with black holes and then as an element in the book it really took a lot like in drafting and editing that was what took the most time and attention is because it's a supernatural phenomenon that we already don't have language for and now I'm gonna try to like personify it and there were times where I was just like why did I do this (laughs) why (laughs) But you get to teach us. You like we, I really do feel like we're, we get a little lesson, and and the way, so so Cassie talks about how there's a black hole that that kind of follows her around, and it made me think of Linus with his dark cloud, and and it it stands in for so many of the negative feelings that we might be experiencing today yeah i i love that part about putting anything surreal in a book is it gives the reader a place to put their feelings and it's even for me i wrote this uh when i was living in silicon valley i would call my dad a lot and he would give me advice and he would always say you're gonna write this into a book and you're gonna sell a million copies um and then he died really suddenly and we went into lockdown and so i was just stuck at home with this grief and I couldn't go do any of the stuff that you would go do. You would go to a party, you would go get drunk, whatever you would do. Um, And so I wrote the book. And so I think this is a compression of grief and isolation, right? If it's, if it, if we think about a work of art in the context it's made in, it was certainly extreme circumstances, but I think for me, the black hole when I was writing, it was me trying to understand grief, which felt very shapeless and felt like it would come on at any time. And sometimes it would go away and other times it would be so overwhelming. And so even in writing it, it's depression for Cassie. But for me, it was it was trying to figure out grief and, you know, what happens to us in the infinite. You know, I, I really was thinking about that a lot. And, you know, for her. I mean, the cool thing for me is as I was writing, we were discovering things about black holes. So the ending just kept mm-hmm. changing. And, you know, in certain drafts, it would talk to her and in other drafts, it would eat the techies. And it was really trying to find this balance of like, how do I make this matter and not make it into like something coy or cute? Because it's not cute. It's <laughs> you not know, cute. It's, it's really not. And they're not cute in real life. Like they're actually terrifying. Um, and so, you know, just trying to find that really sh- like balance. And it finally hit me toward the end that what needed to happen is she needed to be researching it like I did. Yeah. And that's where the started to come in. And you could start to understand, right? Because 
a black hole, what does that mean to you? Well, probably not a lot if you don't have a ton of context or, you know, understand how they operate or why we have them or whatever. And so, yeah, but by the time we got towards the end, I think is when they discovered there were wormholes in there. And yeah. so that was really helpful for me. So I could have like a little bit of a a, a duality to the ending. I mean, talk about a narrative blessing. <laughs> just like have, <laughs> I was like, thank God these scientists, and these astrophysicists, I want to kiss them. But yeah, I do. I joke about this all the time with my friends. I'm like, I could speak at an astrophysicist conference, like in the basement, <laughs> like not on the main stage, but on the, ba- I could explain some stuff. And I'm sure they would all be like, she's completely wrong. <laughs> like, I, I'm like waiting for the astrophysicist community to just like come for my neck, you know? <laughs> I'm hoping they're not heavily online I mean, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Log off, guys. Please don't come for me. I cannot get canceled by you. <laughs> and and then there there is even the physical depiction of the black hole, which I thought was such a powerful way to give the reader a sense of scale, perhaps. Tell me about like I, there are a couple of little illustrations in this book. It's not an illustrated book, but but tell me about that. I, you know, I was thinking about, we all have something we carry with us that subsides and comes back. Grief, depression, maybe you're, maybe you're an angry person. Not you, Maris. <laughs> I'm sure you're not an angry person. No, it's maybe just anxiety. <laughs> right, anxiety. That's a good one. Uh, maybe you have anger issues. Someone out there, a Republican that's listening might have anger <laughs> issues. And some days they wake up and it's not that bad. Other days they wake up and it's terrible. Right. And So I think that it was just really trying to get at this idea that like something would never be completely gone from you. And that's how we are as people, right? Like we can change and grow, but there are certain parts of us that are always going to be there, even if we shrink them really small down to a very fine point, you know, they're still there and maybe they expand again later. Who knows? Um, But so, yeah, I kind of just wanted to play with that idea of carrying something with you all the time, whether that's pain, grief, anxiety, depression, um, and that, I hope, leaves some space for people to project what they're carrying onto it. That's that's the hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was alone when I read this book. And, um, oh, wait, it, though, you were kind of talking about the graphic element. Okay, so oh, yeah, 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 there's yeah. Some gra- there are some graphics of the black hole in the book. And I think I kind of wanted the reader to get scared. I did. And I also, too, I was thinking a lot about how if you look at a black hole, hole on a white page when you look away you'll have that like oh yeah so I was like oh now you'll have one even if you think you don't now you do like your optics you're even going to probably catch it you know as you look away from the page um and so yeah it just felt like a nice way to start like underscoring what she's facing in a really simple graphic way like I didn't want to do anything like it's not a comic book but you know I and I love that and I think it really um, brings home the, the idea that, like that Silicon Valley is the current American West and we are all supposed to be able to go there and thrive. And um, yeah, sometimes that doesn't work out. <laughs> I do think too, I mean, she's somebody who doesn't have a ton of financial literacy and she's like banking on stock. And it's like, what does she know about stock? Probably nothing, right? And even her parents, like same thing. They don't really understand financial management. They clearly are not going to be able to give her good advice about whether or not the stock is going to be worth anything. And so it's her really trying to like punch above her class and it doesn't really 
work out that way. And there is that expectation, of course, that, and I think I was a part of this and, and my loved ones were too, that this idea that anyone who would go out and work at a startup would end up sitting pretty and, and the shame of, of realizing that that isn't true and, and the expectations of, of her family is, is so tough for her. It's even crazy because the more you look into it, I mean, I definitely know some, like, a, I think a friend of a friend of a friend who worked at a big tech company that went public and he had a ton of stock. But if you do the wrong thing with your stock, you're just more broke than you ever started out as. And it's not that <laughs> different from, I, I think it's actually been debunked that you get broker after you win the lottery. I don't think that's actually true, but um, there is something similar that happens where if you don't understand the ins and outs of what stock is and how it works, you can very quickly end up with much less than you began with. And so I do think that it's still a system where if you're not from wealth already, there is no way you are going to actually get anything out of those scenarios. And and certainly not if you are living in San Francisco in the 2020s and your rent, yeah. much like in, in New York City, it's rent has just increased so exponentially that uh, very few people are, are, are entirely secure. Yeah. I mean, it was very, I, I remember there was a documentary I was watching about the housing crisis in San Francisco and they were speaking to an unhoused man and he kind of looks at the camera and is like, you're just two paychecks away from where I am. Don't ever forget that. And at the time I was like, actually it's one paycheck. <laughs> um, but, you know, I never forgot that because it's very easy when you see someone who's unhoused to somehow distance yourself or think that you wouldn't end up there. But like the reality is most of us at this point are in such a tenuous place. Even if you are making okay money or what looks like okay money on paper, it it's not... I don't know many people who are super secure. And it's, you know, you you show us areas of, of the company that Cassie works for, Voyager, all caps. I feel like I've seen some of, of this kind of parody before, but I feel like the real brokenness beneath the system, it really, really comes out here. Even in the idea that employees are constantly talking about what the employee's obligation is to the company rather than what a company's <laughs> obligation might be to its employees, which is like a, a very weird stream of obligation. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there, I think those expectations are what was going on. And has been going on. I mean, the Voyager is really a compilation of everything I've ever seen, right? It's not just places I've ever worked. It's it's everything. Things I've heard, whatever. Um, and it got it got scarily easy to just start patching that into the worst company in the world to work for or one of them. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like how much of this book was my reality versus just how yeah. much is trying trying to show the truth and i think that company unfortunately is a big truth uh i think we're gonna see less of it i think ever since like the backlash against the you know bad boy ceo has started i think we'll see a lot less of 
that happening. But, you know, definitely it's kind of crazy. It's built on, on male toxicity and secrecy and silencing. And, you know, a lot of those companies, when you leave, they have your last paycheck and your NDA and you have to sign your NDA before you can get your last paycheck. And that paycheck for a lot of people, you need that money. It's thousands of dollars. And so when you see all these stories come out about Uber and Lyft and whatever, it's like everyone's NDAs were up, (laughs) you know, like everybody just had to sign that piece of paper to get their money and they couldn't talk. And so, you know, I think that's another kind of way in which this was all allowed to continue is that you can't, can't talk about it. I mean, I remember interviewing at a tech company, I mean, in 2010, and I had to sign an NDA even to get upstairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think like, thanks to things like Glassdoor and even me too, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more transparency and there's a lot more people who will warn you. And there's a lot more like avenues in which to find out. Plus, you know, I, I still work full-time in tech. I work at a company that is super people first. I don't think I could be a manager anywhere else. And I never wanted to be a manager, but I started working there and there's like empathy and care. And, you know, I manage a team of like diverse women writers who are, you know, kick ass, but that's the exception. And I feel very lucky to have found it because what I saw for the 15 or 20 or 10 years I've been in tech, you know, it hasn't been that. A thing that I love about Voyager is we're treated to the mission statement a couple of times and I still could not tell you even vaguely (laughs) what that company does. We do? Yeah, no. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like some, it's like opaque enough that you wouldn't be able to figure out the ethics of it before you got in the door. And that's what really needs to happen. Like, you know, I talk about this frequently when I talk about this book, like when you interview for a job, you're only there for eight hours at max. And so you're making a decision about what they do. And sometimes you don't know until you get in the door. These people are terrible. They're doing unethical things. But I need to stay here now, at least for some amount of time, so I can afford to leave or get enough experience to leave. So yeah, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, she handcuffs herself to a big problem. Absolutely. And I, I think another kind of universal thing about work that that we are increasingly learning is that everyone is supposed to have a thick skin all the time. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people in power are meant to just spread their genius all over the place. And who, whoever gets hurt by that is, is just uh, a side problem. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're in the way of the company's mission or if you're not supporting it, then you're going to get run over. You'll and of course, just... your Cassie is incredibly expendable, and she is reminded of that quite often. Yeah, I mean, everyone is right. Even now, the job market's crazy. Like you know, you so I think she's just kind of an, a way of underscoring the precarity of the whole thing. And she's looking; all she wants is security and stability. And unfortunately, she chooses something that is neither. You know, absolutely. And then. In her love life, we have to get there. She's she's dating a man who she refers to as the chef. He's not named. Tell me about that. You know, I just wanted to have this version 
of softness where she wasn't going to quite get what she signed up for. And so I do think he's just as much of an illusion as San Francisco. And so he needed to be front loaded with all the romance, all the availability and possibility. And then she needed to find out he was not what he sold himself as. Right. It's the, he's the exact same trajectory as the city, as far as I'm concerned. And so, but he needed to have this compelling creative side that would draw her to him. Like he needed to be doing things that were romantic and sweet. And so you had to buy that, like, she really liked this person. And I think she did by the time, very similar to the job, right? By the time she moves out there and gets a couple weeks in, she realizes that she made a mistake and she's unfortunately signed up for at least some duration of time to suck it up. And the same is true with him, right? She's already so into this person that she's already sort of signed up for, I'm going to follow this through. And when he lays it on her that he's in an open relationship in this very unethical way, same thing the train's already moving a little bit right like she's already signed up on some level uh, and i think and and I, I do think like much like in the office you are what is expected of her is that she have a thick skin and not demand anything and not have her feelings be heard you just kind of have to like get on the train as her dad might yeah. say and you might say <laughs> It's also, you know, I was thinking about this. There's a way in which in our relationships, we call in what we can handle. And I Mm. do wonder, I don't think this is somebody who could be in a full-blown relationship, right? She's not doing well. You know, she can pretend all she wants that she wants to be madly in love with someone. But like, did she really have the capacity to do that? I don't know. So I think there is a way in which she's using him in a way too, because he's giving her all the nice things of a relationship. And he also can't really ask for anything. Right. right. He And he doesn't. He's not calling her for emotional support. He's not like other than talking about work, he's not dumping on her, you know, so that that goes both ways, you know, and I think there's a part of her that needs somebody like him who's not full on, you know, because certainly her her friends in who, who she's met since she has moved west are not doing the job either. No. I mean, here's the thing. That was honestly, I made some good friends in San Francisco, but I also saw a lot of people who were at their limit and weren't great to be around. (laughs) And so I wanted to capture that. I do think like, you know, it's hard with with a book like this, there's definitely people who think it's too bleak or too dark. And, you know, I swear I saw somebody say like, it's not believable that everyone around her would be this shitty. And I was like, have you lived in San Francisco, dude? (laughs) Like it's actually pretty fucking reasonable that it would be that bad, you know? So I did want to give her some light moments and there are a couple, but sometimes I have to really remind myself not to apologize for it being bleak because, you know, I don't know if you can look at the world around us right now and with any ethics, offer hope to people in literature. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, it's, it's very hard for me to defend an ending. And I wrote this ending where she, like, destroys the company and she's yeah, the yeah. triumphant person. And, and the reality is I was like, you know what? That is, like, not what a depressed woman is going to do. My I had her like one the times and like, oh, I got their asses and like quit on a post-it note and like I emailed the time. And I just was like, man, like this, this person is not doing that. Like we all want to believe that we're this hero and that at the end of the day, we're going to do the right thing and we're going to be a bad bitch, girl boss, whatever. And the reality is 
she just wanted out, man. Like, and that's simple. That's so simple. And it's hard. It's really hard. I think people sometimes want novels to show them a version of the world and themselves that does not exist. And I, you know, I don't know. I, there was, I couldn't get behind her sabotaging them and somehow coming ahead because it just didn't seem like what she would be doing. Well, yeah, I guess as a reader, there is a level of wish fulfillment that we, we, we want to see, but like, yeah, even, even amidst all of this awfulness, we, we also get to feel the dread of this virus that uh, seems to be approaching and coming closer and closer. Yeah, I didn't want it to be a COVID novel or a climate change novel, but those things did feel like framing devices that added to the pressure. And I did, you know, I was looking a lot at the bell jar and play it as it lays, and they both reference current events as a source of dread for their main characters. And typically I would write a book that's surreal, suspended in time and place. You don't know where it is. You don't know when it happened. There's no cell phones. No one knows when, right? And reading those two books as I was working on this really gave me the freedom to start thinking about these headlines and the way that now they're in our face every minute. And we also never take a minute to think like, how's this actually impacting me when I read every day? I mean, like you, you see people saying like, I have to take I have to only look at it certain times a day or I'll just like fall into a hole, you know? And I think she's an example of someone who hasn't learned how to like devour, how to consume news. And so, yeah, I mean, isn't that the way we're all functioning now? Like you open up Twitter and you see a terrible headline and you take four seconds to spiral before your next meeting. And then you're like, back at it. Put that (laughs) smile back on your face. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think even though it's a panic attack, I think I was trying to get at that feeling of of staring at your phone and feeling like the world's falling apart and you have zero control over it. Show me the lie there. <laughs> <laughs> I wish someone would tell me like how that's not the truth. Like any, anyway. Sarah, this one's so fun. Before we go, would you <laughs> like to recommend some books for us? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So I just read, it's not out yet, but cleaner by Brandy Wells. Oh. It's about a cleaning lady who becomes way too obsessed with the people who work in the building during the day and thinks that she's like part of the team and starts trying to mess with their lives. And it's very like Eileen-ish, right? Like you're all in on yes, this cleaning please. lady's life. Yeah. So that has been really rad to read. And then I love, obviously I talked about the bell jar and played as it lays. There's a book I really love called Why the Child is Cooking in the Polenta. It's, um, I think it's out from the Dockey Archive, translated by Vincent Kling, and I don't want to butcher the author's last name, so I'm not going to do that. But it is in fragments, and it tells the story of a girl who's the daughter of a Romanian family of circus performers, and they're traveling Europe, and her mother is hanging from the big top by her hair every night. And she's like seven or eight, and so it's narrated from her point of view, and it's in Incredible. And it's like, even on the on the like formatting level, there are pages where it's just like her thoughts in all caps. You know, it's just, it's just wonderful. So I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like a, a Shirley Jackson girly. Yeah. I've been going through a lot. Oh, I mean, Toby did in the Copenhagen trilogy. That's my jam all the way through. I love yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I could deal with Toby forever. I'm just like looking at my bookshelf. 
Uh, Joy Williams, The Changeling. I feel like that one should have been such a bigger deal like when it came out. It's like, I think it was not received very well. Was it during crazy. the pandemic? Is that like... In the, oh, in no, the, the Changeling is from a long time oh, ago, The I Changeling. Think. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wasn't it? I think it was like not giving good reviews. And now it's like one of my favorites. So I love that one a ton. What are you reading lately? What am I reading? I just read Yellow Face. Oh, um, did you like it? I haven't read it yet. It's on my stack. I, I did. And it certainly is savvy about the book business in a way that is incredibly depressing. <laughs> oh, and, no. I don't know if I can take it. But it, but no, it's fun depressing. And just, okay, just okay. like right there. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's a good time, but it's so sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I just have so many books. I just finished Death, Death Valley by Melissa Broder. That's going to be a banger. It's really good. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then I love stuff in translation. So um, The Discomfort of Evening. I really oh. love that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm like a sad translation girly at heart. Um, <laughs> you know, actually one thing, one that I talk about a little bit more now when I was editing this book in like my last couple rounds of edits I was reading Hot Milk by Deborah Levy. Mm-hmm. And there was something about it that just made me like write sentences, a bunch of sentences. And I put them in the ends of the sections of the book. And my editor was like, where did these beautiful sentences come from? And I was like, well, the other sentences are also beautiful, first of all. Second <laughs> yeah, of all, I've that. been reading Deborah Levy and it's been very generative for me. So that was definitely, that definitely shaped a lot of the way the sections ended. Because she, I don't know, she just helped me make that gut punch ending where you're like, ugh. She's she's so good at it in fiction and non. Yeah, Um, a queen. A queen. Speaking of queens, thank you very much. Oh, no, queen to queen. You're the queen. Two queens. Hi, T. Um, (laughs) But also tear down the monarchy. I don't know. (laughs) No, thank you for having me. And thank you so much for taking the care to read my work. I really appreciate it. You're so brilliant. Stop. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I won't. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.